kids, you are dismissed to children's ministry. Uh, one other connection to the announcement Jeff, uh, that Matt made about the family retreat. Uh, you, your entire family is welcome to come with you. So if you have youth-age kids, it's not just for you to bring your youth-age kids and then just let the younger kids stay at home and burn the house down or something. You may bring them. Um, there will be activities for them. There will be meetings primarily that are for the parents and the youth, but there will be other ministry times for the kids that are there and uh, activities for them as well. So please make plans. We've made plans to incorporate your whole family so that everybody would be able to come. And we encourage you to be a part of that strongly. Uh, I, too, want to echo a great thank you for the ladies in your prayers for us as we were away at the, at the retreat with the men. <clears throat> I trust the Lord uh, met with us in a significant way and imparted to us uh, truths that we needed to hear. Uh, I want to encourage if you're a man and you, and you were not able to, to be at the retreat or if you uh, slept through parts of it for some reason, uh, would you please get the CDs? What we discussed at the retreat uh, was something that will be an element of focus for us as a church, and uh, as a, I'm with you. My dentist yells at me when I go to him. He yells at me, corrects me, um, because I, I don't go to him. Uh, <clears throat> I only go when there's a problem, and of course he knows I'm a preacher, so he uses that against me, and he says, you know, how many people in your church only show up when there's a problem? <laughs> well said, well said. <laughs> uh, but you know, if you've ever had a toothache, it's just this dull ache, ever-present, that just low-grade pain that travels with you, sort of wherever you go, it joins you in that activity. And it can, it can be quite disruptive. It's, it's a deep enough of an ache to affect the way you feel in most settings. Well, I think condemnation is sort of a toothache in life. It's that dull ache that travels with you everywhere you go that you can, you can get under the weight of failing, falling short, and, and really just feeling condemned. And, and I think one of the things the Lord has given me a sense of, and I won't share much detail on it today, but when we were at the, the pastor's retreat in the fall, uh, there was just a sense the Lord had given me of the need that we have to... to refocus and to correctly understand the grace of God in our lives. And these passages we're going to look at this morning afford us the opportunity to go in that direction. So let me start with this quote from John MacArthur. I actually quoted this uh, exact quote a number of months ago in a message, but it's worth us looking at again. He says, our culture has declared war on guilt. The very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, unproductive. According to Dr. Wayne Dyer, the author of the 1976 megaseller, Your Erroneous Zones, guilt is nothing but a neurosis. Guilt zones, he wrote, must be exterminated, spray cleaned, and sterilized forever. The library's periodical catalog lists these recent magazine articles under the heading Guilt. How to Stop Being so tough on yourself. Guilt can drive you crazy. Guilt-mongering. Guilt, or getting rid of the guilt. Stop pleading guilty. Don't feed the guilt monster in a host of similar titles. Now, just from those titles, are any of those titles describing you? Are you walking around extremely tough on yourself? Are you battling with guilt? in your life? Is that something that's on a daily basis? You know what it is to have the toothache, to be reminded, to be very familiar with how you're falling short. You are majoring in your contributions in life and how you relate to God and how well your performance was in this area or that responsibility in your relationship to this person or that activity or where you are at this station in life or the deep hole that you're in because you made a series of bad choices and now you're buried amidst the consequences of those bad choices, or always feeling like you're not doing enough to relate to God, are those things that are just too familiar to your everyday experience. Well, it goes on in this quote, and he says, even Ann Landers has written, one of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy-consuming exercises in the human experience is 
guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. Now, that's an interesting quote because there are elements of reality in that quote. If we were honest, we would have to say some of those things describe how I feel. I I know what it is to live with the irritant of guilt in my life. I I know what that feels like. I know what it is to be frustrated. I know what it is to want to quit. And so we have a view of condemnation and feeling guilty in our mind. But this last suggestion by Ann Lambert, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world, thrust us into the realm of, we don't like the way guilt and condemnation feel, so what do we do with it? And, and is condemnation legitimate? Look at this definition Webster provides for us for the word condemn. To condemn is to pass an adverse judgment on. Disapprove of strongly. To declare to be guilty of wrongdoing. To pass judicial sentence on. So when, when we experience feelings of condemnation, when that toothache sets in, that's what we're experiencing, we're experiencing these elements. We are feeling adversely judged. I feel like I'm under the lens of something and I'm not grading real well. I feel like I'm being judged and I'm falling short. And we don't like the way that feels. We're being declared guilty of wrong. Somehow my life is wrong. Some of us just walk around with a sense of our life is wrong. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wrong. And probably, I think, the most uncomfortable thing is the, the sense of being disapproved of. I think there's, there's probably few feelings in life that deep down inside affect us more than feeling disapproved of. I don't feel approved. I don't feel accepted. And these feelings, I mean, they're awkward. Nobody wants to have them. As a matter of fact, we probably do everything in our power to avoid feeling condemned in all that that word means. And we'll we'll go to some radical extremes in order to pull that off. Look at this next quote from Charles Sykes. He says, concerning the culture of blame shifting in the U.S. If you lose your job, you can sue for the mental distress of being fired. If the bank goes broke, the government has insured your deposit. If you drive drunk and crash, you can sue somebody for failing to warn you to stop drinking. There is always someone else to blame. Why do we want to blame people so quickly? Because we don't like the way condemnation feels. We don't like coming up short. We don't like being on the wrong end of the comparison, falling short of a judgment. We don't like that. It's very uncomfortable. You throw some kind of rule on people. And what you get usually is, hey, man, don't put that on me. Don't, don't put that on me, man. Don't, don't put that condemnation thing on me. We have treated condemnation like it is absolutely wrong. And for some, it is absolutely wrong. But for some, it needs to be biblically understood. See, we live in a culture that is, it sounds like that quote, that John MacArthur quote. We don't want condemnation to have anything to do with us. And to escape its feelings, we, we, will, we will normally blame someone or something else. You know, what is blame shifting? It's just me creating an excuse for, for why I'm falling short. I don't want to be in the full crosshairs of my own failure. I'd much rather take the edges of it off. I'd much rather soften it up by blaming someone else. Listen, you know how common of an experience it is to sit down with a couple that's going through some kind of a marriage crisis and to waste the first few meetings with blame shifting, constant blame shifting, where one couple, yeah, I certainly can admit that I'm not doing it all right as a husband, but you don't have to live with her. She's this and she's that and she's never this and she always says that. You know, what is that doing? It's, it's an advertisement for, would you please just be understanding to why I'm failing because, you know, she doesn't understand what I have to deal with on an everyday basis. And so I paint her really, really bad, and therefore you, 
you don't judge me as harshly. You're more understanding. And I'm after that. I want to be understood and appreciated and applauded. I don't want to be disapproved of by you. Blame shifting. Right? You ever correct your children? Experience blame shifting? It's like a robotic response. It's like somebody, one of you programmer types, went in and programmed all of our children. If this is said, you say this. If this is said, you always say this. I don't know. It'd be very seldom for me to correct a child and not hear them go, but he did immediately. It's like, you know, okay, well, you sinned, but he did. I mean, it's understandable. Don't you understand, Dad, why I had to sin? I had to do it. He did this. You understand. You live with him. You know what he's like. It's just soften up. Please don't disapprove of me. Please don't find me wrong. We, we've, we've pushed human behavior into the realm of uh, disease model, victimization. You know, we are what we are because somebody else did us wrong. And I've done something wrong in my life, but if I could tell you about my past, what would that do for you? It would be, make you much more sympathetic to me. Because, see, I wouldn't feel your disapproval as strongly because you'd go, wow, wow, what a setback that is. Given what you grew up like and your experiences. Now, what am I after here? I just want to soften the blow of condemnation. I, I'd much rather go with one of these disease models that's out there. The, the DSM-3, which is a diagnostic and statistical manual used in psychology, has labels for human behavior now. Everything's, everything falls into a disorder. You have a disorder, right? You have conduct disorder. Conduct disorder, quote, is a persistent pattern of conduct in which the basic rights of others and major age-appropriate societal norms or rules are violated. Golly, that sounds big and complicated, doesn't it? You have a conduct disorder. You have, I love this one, you have oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder, that, that's what your problem is. Well, that's a pattern of negativistic, hostile, and defiant behavior. Big disorder. You have histrionic personality disorder. That's what you have. The pervasive pattern of excessive emotionality and attention-seeking. I think we called all these things something different when I was growing up. But, you know, if you have a disorder, well, you know what that does for me? It softens the sense of my own failure, doesn't it? You see, because, well, I, well, I know I did that, but you see, I have this disorder. You know, I, I have something that makes me do that. So, yes, yeah, certainly I know I was there, but it wasn't really kind of all me. It was this disorder thing in me. So we create this. Why are we after all this? Because we want to soften the voice of condemnation in our lives. We don't like the way we feel when we're condemned. Well, question. Is it wrong for people to be told they're wrong? Is that wrong? Is it wrong for people to believe and feel they are wrong? Is that something we should really be trying to do away with? Or do the feelings of condemnation have a proper place in the human experience? Our question needs to be, and over the next couple of weeks we'll answer this, when is condemnation right and when is it wrong? There's a time in which condemnation is absolutely wrong. But not for the reasons that we find in this quote. For reasons that we're going to find in the Bible. And there's a time when condemnation actually is right. And you would not want to make it go away. The word condemn, if you open up to John chapter 3 with me real quick. The, the word condemn is the Greek word krino. And it's actually used three times in this passage that we're going to look at. That we're going to pick up. It's on the tail end of what Peter taught through a couple of weeks ago. When he taught primarily in John chapter 3, verse 16, that famous verse about God's love and what God's love is like and what our passion would look like when our passion is like God's love. There is, in these next few passages, a highlighting of this condemnation. And I thought this would be a wise place for us to start. And then the next couple of weeks we will unpack these thoughts a little bit further. But let's, let's read, starting in verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. 
Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Actually, it's used four times. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That's the word krino as well. So you can translate this word condemn or a sentence or a judgment. This is the krino. This is the, the condemnation, the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Now, where does this experience, this condemnation, come from? What, what, what creates it? What's the chemistry for condemnation? Well, I put a little formula there in your outline. The cause of condemnation equals God's righteousness plus our unrighteousness. This is the cause of condemnation. The righteousness of God getting in proximity to our unrighteousness. When that occurs, the feeling that gets experienced is an adverse judgment, is disapproval. So how do, how do we come to understand, is there something good about condemnation? I mean, we first got to understand the nature of it before we can make any decisions here. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 in your outline. Let's see if we can find out where condemnation has originated. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, why? Because all sinned. All right, let's do away with any notion here that we're going to take our sinfulness out on Adam. Uh, certainly, Adam is the source of sin in this world. But we quickly signed on right behind him, every one of us. So we were born in sin, we were conceived in sin as a result of Adam. We were born in sin and we gladly sinned right along with him. For sin, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now please note that. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, Romans 5:18, just a little bit later in that chapter, says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Where does condemnation come from? Condemnation comes from sin. Condemnation comes from sin that was inherited from one man. If you want to know the cause of condemnation, condemnation comes from Sin. Now that's very important because when you live in a world that says, get that off of me, don't put me under that, don't send me on some guilt trip. You know, what is that saying? That's saying condemnation comes from you imposing your rules on me. That's where condemnation comes from. I feel condemned because you keep putting me underneath some expectation that you have for me. And I'm falling short. And when I fall short, I feel disapproved and adversely judged. So therefore, I feel condemned. So don't you put that on me. That's not where the Bible says condemnation comes from. It doesn't come from some prudish individuals who are killjoys, who hang around the Puritans too much, want to take all the joy out of life and stick rules all over you, and therefore I feel condemned. Condemnation originates in sin. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now here's, here's the cure that we're going to get to as well. Not today. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now hold on to that because that's very important. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now there is a principle here in the law coming in that actually does stir up sin in us. It stirs it up in a certain way. But there's also an element here where sin is simply revealed by the law. Right? When the law comes, it, it doesn't create sin. It's not like, you know what, we were fine until the, until the law came along. 
We were not fine. Sin reigned. The Bible said even though the law wasn't given until Moses, death as a result of sin reigned from Adam all the way to Moses. So sin has always been present. When the law comes, the law simply tells us we're sinning. It spells it out clearly. It's very specific. It comes in and it puts categories on sin. Now, if it didn't do that, most of us would just put ourselves in the category of what kind of what kind of a person do you think you are? Well, um, yeah, I know there's a lot of folks that are better than me, but I guess I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I don't know. That's what I'd say. I'm a pretty pretty good person. What does that mean? Pretty good. See, we search for this really vague category for our existence, and then we put ourselves in that category. Well, what does that mean? I'm a pretty good person. Well, see, the law doesn't let you do that. The law comes in very specifically and says, let me define righteousness for you. It is loving God above all other things. Uh, it, is, uh, it is not committing murder. Oh, and it's also not even having a murderous intention in your own heart. It is not committing adultery. Oh, and it's also not even having a lustful thought in your heart. See, the law comes in and gets very specific. And I go from being a pretty good person when the list gets set out before me to being guilty. Right? So in a sense, sin has increased when the law has come in. Not because sin was not present, because the law revealed it. You ever watch one of those crime investigator shows, you know, where they, there's a crime scene. They go to the crime scene. They have all this elaborate equipment, and they go in and they find all the evidence there. Um, this was actually a, a news report the other day. I'm watching these guys lift fingerprints off of a, uh, of a crime site. And, uh, you know, they go in and they put dust. They put this dust all over, and they kind of use this little powder thing. You guys watch some of these shows? They, they powder the thing up, and then they put this tape down, and they pull the tape off, and they lift off fingerprints. Now, how many of you know that powder created those fingerprints? Right? No. The fingerprints were there already. The powder just revealed that the fingerprints were there and let you see it. Well, that's what the law does. The law comes in. It doesn't make you to be the one sinning. It just reveals that you are the one sinning. And you're sinning in these ways, specifically. And so the law serves its function to reveal to us the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of man. On your line it says, when God's righteousness is revealed, our sinfulness is revealed, and we feel condemned. You understand where condemnation comes from? This is, this is the chemical uh, reaction that causes humanity to feel condemned. I feel like, so, like I'm wrong. I hate feeling like I'm wrong. Well, how do you fix this? If you're feeling wrong in your life, how do you fix? How do you make condemnation go away? Well, modern man, modern man seeks to adjust one of the equations here, right? What are the chemical components of condemnation? Well, it is God's righteousness and it is man's sinfulness. So man has two variables he can play with here to minimize condemnation in his, his life. He can either become real better, which, you know, ever notice that society is really not after that one? That's, they're not into, let's just, let's just buck up and improve. Let's just stop sinning, which, by the way, uh, wouldn't work. But it'd at least be a noble attempt on their part. But what you end up doing is let's play with the variable of God's righteousness. Let's adjust that. See, because we can get God's righteousness, if we can turn the lights down a little bit, then we're not going to notice our sin as much and we'll feel better about ourselves because we won't feel condemned. And so people try to adjust God. Matter of fact, this verse here, John 3, 16 and 17, are great verses to use if you want to adjust God. I mean, come on. What's God like? Well, the God I, the God I serve? Let me tell you what He's like. God so loved the world. He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And you guys who are, now that's what God's like. Guys, come on. God is a God of love. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. God is a God who didn't mind coming and getting his hands dirty because he loved us so much. He didn't come to condemn us. God doesn't want to condemn anyone. Somebody stopped reading just a little bit too fast. Why was it that Jesus was not on a mission to condemn man? Well, just read the next verse. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The problem here was not that Jesus needed to come in order for man to know that he was condemned before God. The law has already come to do that. God has already sent his law. Do you understand? The law turns the volume up. You thought you might be condemned? The law clarifies it. You are condemned. There is no question after you've read the law and you've said, wow, I don't measure up. I fall short of that. I feel adversely judged by that. That's not me. That's already occurred. Jesus doesn't need to come to condemn the world because the world's already condemned. He needs to come to save the world from the condemnation that's already in our lives. When you create a God, and this is, this is where deception operates so effectively. When you create a God who's partially accurate, you can deceive yourself quite easily. When you encounter somebody who says, listen, I believe in a God of love. I believe in a God of mercy. I believe in a God of kindness and compassion. I believe in a God of forgiveness. That's what I believe in. Amen. Me too. Are you done, though? Are you done describing him? You know, if you were to describe, if I were to say, describe the people that you met. Describe, the, describe your first view of, a, of an elephant. You know, I've never seen an elephant. Describe an elephant to me. I, I, the elephant had round legs. And, uh, and he had a round body and uh, even had toenails and he had a tail. you have a good picture of an elephant right now? No, you, but you do have a partial picture of an elephant. You don't know how big he is. You know, you don't know, you know, ears, you know. Give me, do me something, you know, trunk. You know, give me some more pictures. You have not given me the whole picture. When you speak of God and you speak of him as love and kind and compassionate and merciful and forgiving, you have been accurate. You just have not been exhaustive. You've not described him completely. When one describes God completely, one adds to those attributes just, holy, pure, righteous. Right? The, one of the songs that we sang, I'm not going to be able to remember the line here, uh, on the cross... The cross showed that God is love. In the next line, and God is just. Right? The, the accurate picture of God is God in his holy righteousness taking the life of his own son. Do not be confused about who God is. The cross is the most incredible act of love. And it is also the most incredible act of justice and perfection and righteousness that you will ever lay your eyes on. So God is all those things. So we, don't, we can't adjust God down and make Him something that would reduce our feelings of condemnation because we've made God not to be somebody who would in any way adversely judge us. The law is from God. It's a revelation of His righteousness and it has adversely judged our lives. One other thing I'd point out to you on how to really not solve the issue of condemnation is what postmodernism is trying to do. Postmodernism has done something very similar. We've taught on this a good bit. I want to keep it before you because you're going to hear it. You're going to hear it in commercials. You're going to hear it in the presidential campaigns. And it is the, the issue of how do you deal with the thought of there being right and wrong. See, when people stand up and promote their values and say, vote for me, at some point they've got to declare themselves about how they feel about that. That should be done this way, not that way. Well, the moment you go, well, either one, I just have a personal preference, but either one would be fine. But if you venture into this way and not that way, because that way is wrong. Now, that's a problem. In our postmodern world, there is the, the, the loosening of convictions, the loosening of absolutes. You know, you're wrong to say something is wrong because in a postmodern way of thinking, how can you really know whether that's wrong or not? You know, the amount of information you really have doesn't allow you to conclude that that's actually wrong. It could be right in ways that, that are just foreign to your way of thinking. So it could be right for that person, even though I don't agree with it. That doesn't make it wrong and I should allow him to do it. Now, welcome to the thinking on same-sex marriages, on, on abortion, on many social issues are being thought through using this guideline. The problem here is 
When you come to the Bible and dealing with condemnation, you are not going to escape condemnation by trying to pull that. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. There's a little hidden element in this passage. Not only are you guilty because you condemn other people, and you also fail, but you're guilty because you dare to judge at all. See, if we truly live in a 100% relativistic world, then I can't tell anybody that they're wrong for anything that they do. Because absolute relativism says, hey, in my universe, I wouldn't do that. But in your universe, you would. One's not right, one's not wrong. It's just a matter of preference and choice. There are no absolutes. The moment you judge that something else is wrong, you have admitted that there is a right and wrong that governs human existence. You have admitted that. And so the only way for postmodernism to really go where its philosophy tries to sort of lay the foundations is get rid of all rules, get rid of all laws. Maybe for you, murder is wrong, but for that person, it was the right thing for them to do for their own reasons. And who are you to tell them that they're wrong? See, society, I say this, I trust this, society is never going to go there. Society will always stand up and say something is wrong. Murder is wrong. No, no responsibility at all, right? I mean, you drive through a traffic light, you smash the car, uh, you kill somebody in it, destroy their vehicle. I mean, when I see a red light, it doesn't mean stop to me. It just doesn't. What I think it means is, is it means just smile. You know, red's my favorite color. So I smile and I drive through the intersection. You know, I destroyed your car and I took your husband's life. You know, but you know, it wasn't wrong. It wasn't the wrong thing for me to do. You understand society can never truly go here. Society will turn around and say, you were wrong. The rules say there's right and wrong. Well, the moment you do that, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. You admit there is a right and there is a wrong out there. So this philosophy of postmodernism will not work. Just draw the line to the extremes of the way in which it thinks. It doesn't work. So man cannot seem to escape condemnation. The feeling of falling short and being condemned. Now let me, let me trace something out in this passage. What I will call the, the epicenter of condemnation revealed in this passage. Where did these... This sense of condemnation. Where does it get launched from in our experience? What are you and I doing in life that brings with it sort of the vibrations of condemnation, right? And there's an earthquake taking place and, and, and we're standing on ground that's beginning to shake. Well, what's going on that's creating that? Well, I think two things are in this passage that highlight what creates the sense of condemnation. One is unbelief and the other is the love of sin and its pleasure. Unbelief and the love of sin in its pleasure. Look in verse 18 and unbelief first. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. If you believe in Christ, as we'll see next week, condemnation should not be your experience. So if you're a Christian here today and you're walking around with a dull toothache of condemnation, there's something wrong. We do need to correct that. But if you do not believe in Christ, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, unbelief brings with it a sense of God's disapproval. And it should. It's a refusal on man's part to honor God as God and believe what He said. Do you think you should feel appreciated for that? with it sort of the vibrations of condemnation, right? And there's an earthquake taking place and, and, and we're standing on ground that's beginning to shake. Well, what's going on that's creating that? Well, I think two things are in this passage that highlight what creates the sense of condemnation. One is unbelief and the other is the love of sin and its pleasure. Unbelief and the love of sin and its pleasure. Look in verse 18 and unbelief first. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. If you believe in Christ, society will turn around and say, you were wrong. The rules say there's right and wrong. Well, the moment you do that, you have no excuse, O oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. You admit there is a right and there is a wrong out there. So this philosophy of postmodernism will not work. Just draw the line to the extremes of the way in which it thinks. It doesn't work. So man cannot seem to escape condemnation. The feeling of falling short and being condemned. Now let me, let me trace something out in this passage. What I will call the, the whoever does not believe has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Should you feel at odds with God? I don't know. You stand in front of the God of the universe and say, you're a liar. And walk away going, but I feel fine. Trust me, you will not feel fine. You will feel the vibration of the ground of condemnation. You will feel wrong. Your toothache will begin and be pronounced. Because God has designed the universe that way. If you traffic in unbelief, you will experience condemnation. You will experience his adverse judgment. You are calling him a liar. Don't think for a moment that that produces joy and peace and rest. It does not. Now, this is one thing about Christianity that I've said before. But you know, philosophically, Christianity must, must either be fully embraced or fully rejected. But it should not be allowed to sit at the table of communities of faith. It should not. It is either the only way, and it is either the truth of God, and it should be fully embraced that way, or it should be fully rejected. Fully, outright rejected. It's the most ridiculous thing ever said. It's a lie. If it's not true. So, you know, when you say, we, well, we're going to have a panel up here of various world religions. We, we'd like the liar religion to come on, come forward. We all know it's a lie, but we're going to let you come on up anyway. Either embrace it or reject it fully. But Christianity should never be allowed to sit next to other religions peacefully. God has either told the truth in Christianity or he has lied. And the people who follow this are living a lie. Don't applaud them. Feel Sorry for Christians. They've wasted their lives if it's not true. Unbelief involves not believing that God's way is the best. Calling into question His wisdom. God has told us how to live our lives. What would be rewarding? What would be God-glorifying? What would bring into our lives benefit and blessing? We hear that even as Christians. We hear that and we wrestle with, do I believe that? Will I walk that way in that situation? I, I don't know. Why don't you know? Because that looks difficult. That, that looks painful. And from my perspective, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I don't know if I'll bring myself to do that. Well, what is that? That is unbelief. It is me saying, God, no matter what your wisdom is for my life in this situation, I don't subscribe to it. I call into question your wisdom. I don't know if you really know what's best in this situation. Should you feel at peace being at odds with God like that? No. If you're walking in unbelief, the ground is beginning to shake. And when it's vibrating and things are falling off the shelves around you, it's because you are in the zone of condemnation. The epicenter has been your unbelief. Unbelief involves not believing that God is capable of doing what He's promised. Calling into question His power. Listen, I know God loves me. I know he has some good intentions, but you don't understand. You don't know my child. What are we saying in that moment? Well, if I fill in the rest of the blank here, my child's more powerful than God. <laughs> my child will not respond. You understand? God might be strong, but you haven't met my child. My child is not going to do whatever it is that God wants to do. Well, now I have unbelieved, I do not believe in the power of God. I do not believe in God's ability in this situation. I'm sure God has some great intentions. No, I don't doubt that God loves me. I just don't think He can pull it off. That's what we're saying. You can't walk away from that exchange with a sense of peace and joy. You are on the ground of condemnation. You're walking in unbelief. Tozer says, the average evangelical church lies under a shadow of 
quiet doubting. The doubt is not the unbelief that argues against Scripture, but worse than that. It is the chronic unbelief that does not know what faith means. That is, that's a sobering thought. Right? I mean, you're here this morning and you, you lack a sense of peace. You lack joy in your life. Really, I mean, let's extract that. What would be the basis for me lacking joy in my life? It would completely be based on what I believe. Right? I can change your joy instantly, can't I? If I could guarantee you. I mean, God had a, a word for me, and the word was so specific that I told you everything you did in the last week, what you ate, where you were, so that you believed that the next thing out of my mouth was so much from God. And I said, tomorrow, you are going to win the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes. And there will be a man at your door with a check for $4 million. And everything I had said up to that moment was absolutely trustworthy. I bet I could change your joy just like that. I bet you'd get real happy, wouldn't you? Why? Because you believe something about your future. You believe, oh, so many of my problems have just been solved. There's so many opportunities now that will come to me because we can finally pay off that and do this and go here. This is great. See, I I agree with Tozer. I agree with this for my own life. The average evangelical church lies under a shadow of quiet doubting. I don't really believe God. I don't really believe that we have a great future. God is in it. His promises are rich. He will not fail. God cannot fail. I start believing that, knowing that. I don't need to extrapolate my current circumstances into misery. I extrapolate who God is into the future. And I have reason for joy in my life. And if I'm here today lacking joy, I am lacking belief. I am on the grounds of unbelief. Welcome to a toothache. Unbelief postures us outside of God's promises. God has made promises. You know, when the people in the wilderness didn't believe God, what was, what was their lot in life? It was wandering, zigzagging through nowhere. Let's go over here now. Moses said, time to move. Let's go over here now. Do you think they ever clued in? You know, when the sun started getting in the wrong direction, they thought, well, I thought we were headed to the promised land. But you know, I've noticed for the last several days, the sun is on the wrong side of our journey. We're going in the opposite direction of what we were just going in yesterday. And this is their experience for 40 years. They say on average, it would have taken 40 people dying every day in order for that whole generation to have died off in the wilderness. So every day is zigzagging through the wilderness, nowhere to go, but a lot of funerals to attend. Wow, is that a fun time? How'd they end up there? As a result of unbelief. Do you think they were experiencing the pleasure of God? Do you think they were walking around going, oh, this is so good. Well, what a promising hope we have. What's the hope? Well, more of us will be dead tomorrow. And we'll change direction. Didn't we just see that camel? You know, I mean, this is exciting, isn't it? This is the life of unbelief. This is where unbelief takes you. God has got great promises, but if you and I walk in unbelief, we don't get to experience them. And that's a reality. The second element that's in this passage is in verse 19, this other epicenter, if you will, for condemnation. It says, this is the judgment. This is the condemnation, the crino. Verse 19, the light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People loved the darkness. I mean, we, we, we might need to get a more accurate picture about people to understand why condemnation traffics in our lives. Right? The, the first little point I made underneath that point is decent people are still sinners. Sometimes we don't quite get this. Sometimes, sometimes we, have a, we have a host of people in our minds that are just, they're decent people. Decent people are still sinners who love something besides God and who therefore love darkness rather than the light. Isaiah 53, 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, turning to our own way, our own way 
is a sinful, sinful thing to turn to. I want life my way. I want that relationship my way. I want that level of success my way. I want that material possession. I want that. I have my own ideas about life. This is who I'd like to be, and I'd like to be it by the end of next week. I have my own timetable. I have my own way from my own life. This is my life, and I have my own ideas. Can you understand? That attitude is, is so sinful, it required it being laid, and he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My Battle and contention with God from my way versus submission to Him is the crowning jewel of sin in every one of our lives. So wanting things my own way is the very nature of sin. Look at this thought from J.C. Ryle concerning decent people. He says the words, because their deeds were evil. Right? Some of us have a hard time finding evil in people's deeds because they're just decent people, Right? What's so terrible about that person's life? I mean, they're just decent people. They're good neighbors. They help people out. They have, they're involved in some good causes. We see them as decent. These words, because their deeds were evil, are very instructive. They teach us that where men have no love to Christ and his gospel and will not receive them, their lives and their works will prove at last to have been evil. This is what the Bible says. They reject the light because they love darkness and they will not come to the light because their deeds are evil. Their habits of life may not be gross or immoral. They may be even comparatively decent and pure. But the last day will prove them to have been in reality evil. Pride of intellect or selfishness or love of man's applause or dislike to submission of will, or self-righteousness, or some other false principle, will be found to have run through all their conduct. In one way or another, when men refuse to come to Christ, their deeds will always prove to be evil. Human eyes may not detect the flaw, but the eyes of an all-seeing God do. Because their deeds were evil are very instructive. They teach us that where men have no love to Christ and his gospel and will not receive them, their lives and their works will prove at last to have been evil. This is what the Bible says. They reject the light because they love darkness and they will not come to the light because their deeds are evil. Their habits of life may not be gross or immoral. But I could think anybody with power could easily be tempted to seek after the applause of men. She's got lots of millions. She wouldn't spend it on some noble cause because she wants people to see her as someone to be applauded and appreciated. She just spent money on her own applause. That was a real motive. And I don't know that. But one day that will be revealed. But you know what I've yet to hear in, in her scenario in that instance is this is for the glory of God. Whatever is not for the glory of God is, is piracy. You've stolen the planet. You have stolen the resources. You have stolen that money and used it for your own glory. So at the end of the day, we're going to find out that there's a lot of decent people who stand on the gown of condemnation because they love the darkness. They don't run to the light and believe the gospel. Here's the great sin of decent people. It's the second point. The great sin of God finishing second. That is the great sin of decent people. Remember the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, with every ounce of vitality. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall have a driving passion for God. You should be obsessed with God. You should want God more than anything else. In the universe, any sense of accomplishment or applause or reward or relaxation or comfort or stroking. I want God more than anything else. You shall love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being. That's the the great commandment. What's the first? The first commandment and the list of commandments prepares us for that. I am the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. Nothing else in your life is to matter more 
or be of more importance or are you to be more devoted to than God? Now, how many decent people do you know that that cannot be said of them? They're decent people, upstanding citizens. Even subscribe to some moral activities that come from the Bible. But God is not their obsession. God is not their object of worship. Something else is first place. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. You know, that's, a, that's a huge phrase. To know God is different than honoring God as God. Or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans chapter 1 is explaining why the wrath of God is coming. And what it finds is, here's why the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is the actual, um, you know, if there's a sentencing part of the trial, you know, there's, there's a trial, there's sentencing, and you actually go to jail. The, the crino, the condemnation, would be the sentencing. It would be you tell, being told, you are guilty, and there is coming a day of punishment because you are guilty. The wrath of God would actually be the meeting out of that, that punishment. It would be condemnation putting on reality in your life. And so Romans chapter 1 is explaining why is the wrath of God coming? Well, it's coming because men have exchanged something else to be God for them. That's what this whole chapter is about. And decent people do that. They drive nice cars. They speak to you nicely when you walk by. They would sacrifice. They would take you to the hospital if there was something wrong with you. They would appreciate your stance on this moral issue. They have it as well. But what's first in their own life is their own popularity, their own acclaim, their possessions, their accomplishments, their love of pleasure in this category or that one. That's what's first. And God says, because of that, because you have exchanged something of the creation for the worship and service of me, the wrath of God is coming. And you live under the condemnation, the sentencing of God in that reality. Your outline, it says, deprioritizing God is the most sinful thing man ever can do. There is nothing more sinful. Now, you and I think there's a lot of things more sinful. You don't watch the news and somebody says, a man in Metairie deprioritized God today. Oh, <gasps> what? Honey, come here. You've got to see this. Unbelievable. You know, no. But let him say that some guy kidnapped some children and mutilated this person and did some horrible crime. See, if you sin against man, boy, you get our attention, baby. That was wrong. That guy deserves. Oh, man, I hope he gets what he's got coming. But you let somebody deprioritize God and man is not bothered. The Ten Commandments don't start with man. It takes four commandments before you get to anything about man. It starts with God. It's about loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love anything else is to love darkness rather than to love light. The last element of this fact that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light. They love it. It's a difficulty of loving sin's pleasures too much to let go. People love the pleasure that sin brings. Can all of us remember that? Some of us are still experiencing that. That's a reality. We love the pleasure. We love the comfort. We love the meaningfulness that we feel that it gives to our lives. Too much to let go. What a price to pay. Me? Give that up. I don't know. J.C. Ryle says, People do not come to Christ and do continue unconverted just because they do not wish or want to come to Christ. They love something else better than the light. That's what that verse says. James Boyce and Philip Ryken in their Doctrines of Grace book quotes Jonathan Edwards. says, Edwards spoke of motives. Why is it that the mind chooses one thing rather than the other? Edwards asked. He, he answered that the mind chooses what it does because of motives. The mind is not neutral. 
it thinks some things are better than other things. And because it thinks some things are better than other things, it chooses what it judges to be best. So you stand before God. God sends light into the world. His Son puts on human flesh. The incarnate God has come to reveal the gospel and the rescue of man and how to to come back into relationship with God, have our sins forgiven, to join in fellowship with the eternal God. And man turns around and says, "Mm, no thanks. Why? According to this verse, because man loves something else more. Man loves the darkness. Man loves the reward of sin. Listen, you know, most of us, which we're talking to somebody else about coming to Christ, coming into a relationship with Him, and most of us spend way too much time arguing at a philosophical level. You're trying to prove the deity of Christ and prove the Bible's reliable. And, you know, there's a place for that. We should do that. The Bible encourages us to be prepared to do that. But in my opinion... We know the number one reason why people don't come to Christ? It's because they love the pleasure of sin. How many people have you really met that once you scratch the surface of their arguments, it's gone? You know, they come up and they say, well, you know, I just don't believe the Bible. And you ask them two questions and they're done. Well, well, well why do you believe that? Well, where do you believe that text comes from? What do you believe the origins of, of well, I don't know. I just feel like, well, that's a bunch of noise. It's a bunch of smokescreen. The real issue is, I love sin. I love the pleasure it brings. I love having my marquee over my life. I love being in charge of me. I love being able to direct my life in the directions I want to go. I love doing relationships the way I want to do them. I love enjoying the pleasures of sin. The Bible even teaches that there is pleasure in sin. And I'm unwilling to part with it. You don't know why people won't come to Christ? It's because in this verse, they love something else more. They think it's better. And the reason why anybody has come to Christ is because a revelation has come to you that there could be nothing better than giving my life over to Christ completely. Remember, Moses considered the reward of God a greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt. So much so that he would become a a slave, a Hebrew slave, and give up on that. See, when you see something better, you'll always give up that which you thought was better until you meet something better. The reason why people don't want Christ is because they think they have something better than him. Let me close with this thought. Matt, go ahead and and come up. Please consider, I put this note in your your outline here. I mean, here's the epicenter for condemnation. Right? If condemnation is, is vibration, the epicenter for that vibration, what causes that movement in our lives, that we start feeling our life rumbling and stuff's bouncing around in our life, and the, the sense that we're experiencing is condemning, I feel disapproved of, I feel the toothache coming on, the, the epicenter for that in this passage is unbelief and the love of sin and its pleasures. This is what causes the ground to start shaking. Now, please make note of this. For believer and unbeliever alike, whenever your attitude or actions have their origins in these two areas, unbelief or the love of the pleasure of sin, the feelings of condemnation are an unavoidable consequence. Now, the only difference is, and we'll talk about this next week, the only difference between a believer and an unbeliever in this category is the unbeliever is truly condemned. The believer is not. For reasons we'll look at next week. However, he sure feels condemned. As Christians, you don't have to raise your hands, but you get around Christianity, you get around covenant group, you get around people who are in your life and they start speaking certain things to you and you're living in unbelief. Or you're practicing some secret area of sin in your life. And they get around that. How many of you know, you probably have said this. Oh, don't put that on me. Don't put that on me. Don't hang me on that. Don't, don't, don't put that guilt trip on me. Man. I'm, I'm not, I, I ain't in that legalism thing. Listen, it's not that person's words that are doing that to you. It's your own sin. In those two categories, it's like you've set fire to something that smells like condemnation. 
your sin set fire to it. It wasn't that somebody came and imposed. You can't turn around and say, oh, Moses, don't bring that condemnation thing. The Bible doesn't say Moses brought the condemnation. The Bible says the trespass of one man, sin entered in the world, and through him, condemnation came. Through one man, condemnation came to us all. The, the law simply revealed that we were condemned, truly, deeply condemned. I want to clarify this today because next week, there's a cure for condemnation. There's a wonderful, incredible cure for condemnation. Condemnation should not be the feeling of a Christian. You should not walk around life with a dull toothache of failure and falling short and feeling condemned and on the adverse side of a judgment. That should not be your experience. But we do need to see, is condemnation legitimate? Do we subscribe to Ann Landers and just throw all condemnation out? See, condemnation shouldn't even exist on planet Earth. Well, I think as we look today, that's not true, is it? We're already condemned. Let's stand up together.